Um, we are in Exodus right now, and we are finishing our series. This is the end of our Exodus series, and some of you are like, wow, that was a really long series. Um, it was actually a pretty quick pace to move through 40 chapters of the Old Testament. Um, in fact, some of the weeks, like this week, we've taken five chapters at a time, and that's because we want to deal with these things in big enough units that we don't get almost bogged down by the detail of what it is, because as interesting as that stuff may be, we want to see the themes through this book. And so we're wrapping up this week in a second part of a two-part series. Last week was the glory of God, part one. This week is the glory of God, part three. Just kidding, part two. Um, and we are in Exodus 35. Now, before we start reading for this week, the one thing I do just want to come back to and point out to everybody because it's so important in terms of like knowing what we're talking about here is in the book of Exodus, we're reading about what God's doing with these people, the Israelites, his people. We're reading about the beginning of his people, all of their struggles in Egypt, they're, they're, they're being rescued from Egypt, they're wandering in the wilderness, all the laws, everything that God gives them. We're reading all of these things. And Exodus makes it very clear why all of this stuff is happening. And it's not just happening so that we can have good stories for children's ministry and VBS. There's cool stuff to make Christian movies about. It's happening for a very specific reason. And that reason is the glory of God. We read about throughout Exodus, God makes it really clear again and again and again. I'm doing everything I'm doing, all of this stuff. It's so exhausting, so much stuff. I'm doing all of it so that I will be brought glory, so that, so that people will know who I am in the world and that they will worship me. That's why I'm doing this. God, God is very matter-of-fact about that. He says, there's nothing better for people in the world than to know who I am. There's nothing better than them for them than to live for me. And so the most important thing I can do is make sure that the people of the world know my name and know about me and how, I'm, how my people are distinct from others. We read about this throughout Exodus, but one example is even just in what Moses communicates to Pharaoh during the plagues. You guys remember the plagues? They were like months and months ago, so long ago, right? Pharaoh's uh, talking to Moses, and Moses says this to Pharaoh to kind of explain to him why this is so drawn out. Why all the plagues? Why is it like this? He says... For by now I could have put out of my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. This is God talking through Moses, saying, I've done all of this to show that my name must be proclaimed. Yes, I could have immediately taken the Israelites from you. I could have killed all the Egyptians that I wanted to. I could have done it all in, a, in the snap of the fingers. But I didn't do that because I want people to know about my glory. I want people to know who I am, and this is the way they're going to. The glory of God is what Exodus is all about. It is the key to understanding the entire book. And if we miss that, if we think Exodus is about what it's like to be a good people or what it's like to be a good leader like Moses or what it's like to follow all the rules or, or anything like that, then we miss the main thing that Exodus is about, which is about the glory of God. So let's read the first. Now, here's what we're going to do. Um, even though we're covering five chapters, we're only going to look at the first three verses and the last four verses. Okay, that's my deal with you guys. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut it down significantly. And the reason is because the middle of the five chapters is basically five chapters of them actually building all the stuff that God told them to build. All of the tabernacle, the priestly garments, building the ark, doing all the sacrifices, all that stuff, everything that they, God told them to do in great detail, they do it. And so you could just pretty much sum up the five chapters for our purposes this morning by saying they did it, 
Okay, so there you go. I saved you guys five chapters. Don't say that I don't preach short sermons. Five chapters, they did it, okay? So we're going to look at the first three verses before they start that work and see something important here in the beginning. Verse, chapter 35, verse 1 says this. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days' work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall not kindle no fire. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. So this is interesting. It's kind of a random thing, it seems, right? At the beginning of this five chapters on building stuff, why would God talk to the people, remind them again about the importance of Sabbath, of a day of rest, right? Sabbath, this word, it's, it's from the Hebrew word sabbat, and it translates literally, and it just means to stop. That's it means stop, just to cease what you're doing, okay? So to take a Sabbath day is to take one day that you just stop doing everything, that you stop doing the things that you're doing. And within the context that it's always given, it's to stop work, right? To stop the toil that man must do in order to make life happen and make things happen on earth. Now, we first see the day of rest of stopping in creation. God didn't need to rest, He's God, but he did rest. Why? Because he didn't need to work either. God didn't need to work very hard to make creation. And the day of rest is a reminder to us that we, our hope and everything that we do is not built in and wrapped up in all of the work that we do, that it's not all on us, that it's not all on our hands, that if if we really are a people who trust God, then we can rest and know that he's going to still take care of us, that it's not all the things that we do. Now, this is spoken of, um, it's also a day that is, it says here in these first three verses that it is a holy day, right? It's a, it's a Sabbath, which means you stop everything, and it's a holy day. It's like a holy Sabbath. Holy means consecrated. It means set apart, okay? So it's a day that you stop, but then it's also a day that you set apart for looking to the Lord, focusing on him, remembering who he is, remembering what he's done. That's what you must do during the Sabbath, Okay? Now, that's huge. Why is this coming right now? Why is this coming at the beginning of five chapters of the people working really hard so that they can experience the presence of God? Because the people are about to spend five chapters explaining how they work really hard. They're about to start doing the work that God called them to do. And if they don't take a day off, if they don't take a day of rest, then there's something incredibly wrong with the way that they're going to start working. Now, God says really, he says something really intense here, right? He says, whoever does any work on it, on the Sabbath, shall be put to death. That's nuts. That's like crazy. That's like you read that and you go, whoa, hey, hang on a second. That's, that's a little intense, right? Let's scale back a little bit. Maybe we don't have to make it the penalty of death when we're talking about Sabbath, but he gets really serious about the Sabbath. Why get that serious about the Sabbath? Because the whole reason that these people, the Israelites, exist are not because God wants a bunch of stuff built, and they're not because he wants a bunch of impressive groups of people living on the earth. It's because he wants to be glorified. He wants his name to be known. And how does that happen? It happens when all the other people in the world look at the Israelites and say there's something different about them than us. That to be a holy people means to be a distinct people. People look at you, they go, there's something different about what they're doing than us. Right? So someone ought to look at the Christian and say, there's something different about the way they work than me, the atheist. 
There's something different about the way that they live their lives than me, the person who doesn't believe in God at all. And sadly, much of the time, that's not the case. And it's not because of the rules we follow. It's because of the priorities that we have, where our hearts are, the things that we put our confidence and our hope in. If your hope and your confidence is in your work that you do because you're the only one that can do it, then you are not able to take a day of rest. You are incapable of resting and truly relaxing. And this is a sign of faith in God. We talk about this a lot. That to take Sabbath, to take a rest, means to trust God. And that's why it's so hard to do it. It means to let go and say, I trust that God will provide for me, that God will take care of me. And it's a matter, it seems, of life and death. There's so many different ways that we rest. We find so many different things restful. It's different for everybody. Sabbath is often different for so many different people, right? Some people like walking on the beach. They say that's restful. I told you guys last week that my wife was gone for, uh, for like a week, and I became like an aimless, wandering, identityless person who was depressed and sad, and uh, this is what happened. And so I went to the beach, because people told me that's what you do. You know, you go to the beach and maybe you relax, you know, you have some me time. And I went to the beach, and I just walked around like a depressed person. It was the saddest thing you've ever seen, right? There were other people on the beach that were happy. Some of you might be like, no, I'd love to go walk on the beach alone, and I would be totally happy. Not me. That makes me feel depressed, right? You know what makes me rest? I'll tell you the most restful thing. About six months ago, Pastor Dave and I were talking about redoing the lobby. That's not restful. And he goes, uh, and we were talking about building a cabinet for the lobby. That's also not restful. And uh, don't think for a second, by the way, that Dave and I built this cabinet. Because he goes, we got to talk to Jerry Wheeler, right? And I'm like, Jerry Wheeler, yeah, he builds everything, right? So we call Jerry Wheeler. This guy goes to our church. He builds stuff. If you've seen it, he's probably built it, right? And, uh, and Dave's like, have you been to Jerry's shop? And I was like, no, I've not been to Jerry's shop, but I've been hearing about Jerry's shop. So he said, let's go to Jerry's shop. So we hopped in the car and we drove to Jerry's shop and we got there. It was snowing, guys. It was, it was December, it was January or February and it was snowing outside. And I say that because you walk into Jerry Wheeler's wood shop and it is like heaven. It's this wood shop full of wood shop stuff. And... There's snow going by the window outside, and I was like, this is where I want to be right now. I don't want to leave. I want to stay here with Jerry. I don't want to go back to church. I don't even know if I want to go back home. I just want to stay in this workshop, this wood shop, right? Now, my wife, and I'm going to say irrational here, okay? She has an irrational fear of sharp objects, including saws and power tools. So uh, she would probably not want to walk into Jerry Wheeler's woodshop. She would find it very unrestful. She'd be afraid that like you trip over a cord and you hit a switch, and then you land on it with your arm and then the arm's gone, all that stuff, right? <laughs> that that totally happens or something, right? And so we both feel very differently about Jerry Wheeler's woodshop. I find it incredibly restful, right? There's all a million different things that we do to find rest. That's the crazy thing about it, right? Some of us, we're like, I got to go on a hike. I can't relax till I go on a hike. And some of you hear that, you're like... <laughs> That's crazy, right? Like that's the least relaxing thing I've ever heard, right? If you're a teenager, you probably don't like hikes because I remember going on a lot of hikes as a teenager and being like, well, are we done yet, right? Uh, I have a cat. I used to have a cat. We got rid of him, you know, and he uh, just wasn't working out. And uh, <laughs> he, was, he was really good at finding, they're really good at finding a spot that's sunny, you know? They'll find the weirdest, most random spot and then that's where they will lay down. And it's like a really good lesson in resting. They're like, hey, listen, this is a full-time job for me. I'm really good at it. I know what I'm doing. So I'm going to go find this one little area on half of one stair on the staircase, so you'll step on me, and it's going to be sunny, and I'm going to lay on my back. And I mean, if you have a cat, you look at him sleep, you're like, that's, that's pretty restful. That's what I need to do. And then you go to sleep, and that's how you rest. You just go to sleep. A lot of us just like, I just need to sleep. I need to take a nap. 
Some people would like, I would, are like, I would just sit down and watch Lord of the Rings movies all day. I would sit down for like 12 hours straight and I'd watch Lord of the Rings movies or something like that and I'd be totally restful. Some people do puzzles. I do puzzles. I just got an amazing Golden Girls puzzle. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm so excited about this puzzle. It's like the best. They all look kind of similar though, so it's gonna be a hard puzzle. Like, <laughs> they do, they have the same hairstyle. There's so many different ways that we rest, but it's important that we do that. And part of life is even figuring that out, right? What's really genuinely restful and what can become a preoccupation? Because some of us can enjoy rest and then can be like, now it's a preoccupation, okay? You go fishing one day and you're like, I love fishing. Now that's my whole life. I shouldn't use that example because it's really close to home. It's literally close to home. But a lot of you know what this is like, right? You do something and you enjoy it, and then it's hard to not live your whole life just to enjoy that thing. But that's not what we're meant to do with rest. We're meant to work, and we're meant to care about what's going on, and we're meant to care about how God uses us, but we're meant to be the kind of people that God needs to say, I want you to stop, and I want you to rest and set that time aside for me. Sabbath says that we can stop and trust that God's gonna provide. I read an interview this last week with Elon Musk, the entrepreneur, the inventor, it's in the New York Times. And he was saying in this interview, apparently he gets really emotional in this interview in several places and he just stops and starts crying. And he said, and all the interview's about is how hard he works. And he basically, he works for Tesla and SpaceX, he's gonna get us to Mars one day. And he's basically saying he had to miss his brother's wedding. He has five kids, he never sees any of them. He's never anywhere but his office. He sleeps in his office much of the time. And he just works all the time. And he's like totally melting down as a person. And in this interview, he's telling them that he's doing this because he, he genuinely believes that the future of humanity rests on his shoulders. He believes that if he can't get us to another planet, if he can't build a car that won't actually hurt our planet, but will help us survive. If he can't do that stuff, no one else will. This is the way that a person, that's consistent. It's consistent with his worldview, right? That's the way that you have to work when you don't believe that God is going to give you a day off and say, I will keep things running and I will still take care of you in this time. But if you believe in God and you believe in who he says he is, then you can stop and you can rest and you can find a way to do that. Rest is about giving our attention to God. God can create us, he can save us, he can provide for us, he can protect us, he can forgive us, but we still have to decide to pay attention to him and to worship him. And so many of us can't. And we believe that God wants us to pay attention to him so he can do something with us. But much of the time, he wants us to just start paying attention to him to begin with. One author said this, and it is so true when he was talking about rest. He talks about who really pays attention to God in Scripture. He says, this theme indeed often forms a subplot of comedy in the Bible. God or Jesus or an angelic messenger shows up, and those who should know better, who should be paying attention, priests, lawyers, teachers, apostles, typically miss it. While those least deserving, shepherds, children, beggars, prostitutes, typically grasp it. And immediately, it turns out numbskulls are numb every day and seekers of grace are awake nearly always. It is so profoundly true that in the Bible, one of the things that we see that surprises us is that the people that were supposed to see the important things weren't paying attention to God. And the people that were in need of grace were the ones that immediately saw Jesus when he showed up on the scene. 
Rest is important because it's one of the things that God uses to bring us to a place where we will simply pay attention to him. Paying attention to him. Wouldn't you agree that's important? That is an important thing, but it is a difficult thing. And it is difficult because we often only want to pay attention to him when we think he wants to do something with us or for us. There was no way that God was going to let his people start the biggest building project that they had ever undertaken without explaining to them what it looks like to work for the Lord, which means having rest. And he goes on, and we read throughout, they build everything, and they make everything. And they make the tabernacle, and they make the priestly garments, and they build the ark, and they do all this stuff, and they make all the sacrifices. And all the things that they do are meant to give, to give them a way to experience the presence of God. That God may dwell with them, or as nearby them as possible, without actually consuming them and killing them with his holiness. And so it happens, and we read about it at the end of Exodus, at the end of chapter 40, in the last few verses. In Exodus 40, 34, it says this. Then the cloud covering the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because, he could se- because the clouds settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till that day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So they got it. Guys, this is the happy ending of all happy endings. This is the happy ending of the book of Exodus, of all of the ups and downs that we've seen, of all of the ways that the people have been and not been obedient to God and gotten what it is that he's talking about and all of the things that have come up and all the complications and difficulties. What we see here in the end is incredible. It is that the people get to experience the presence of God and that he's gonna lead them. When he moves, they will follow. And when he stays, they stay. And that is an incredibly good thing. That means that these really are his people, that the world will know about who he is through these people and what they do. When he stayed, they stayed. When he moved, they moved. I said that ultimately, this is about the glory of God. Exodus is about the glory of God. Seeking to experience his glory, which is what they wanted. They wanted him to dwell in their midst so they could experience his glory because they knew, finally, that life would only be found in in the midst of the glory of God. That that was where they're going to find life, is with God. Remember we talked about last week, they had an option to get everything else. They could have all the things. They could have the promised land. They could have everything else, but they weren't going to have God in their midst. And they said no. That's devastating news to us. We want the glory of God because from that glory comes life. And it comes, and we talked about this last week, our identity. We literally cannot be ourselves without God. In a world that says that the very thing that you need to be yourself is freedom from everything outside of you. You need to be able to distinguish yourself so individually from everyone else and everything else. And we will, we, will, we will call you like great when you are able to do that in the most extreme ways. Your identity is yours alone and it is from nothing else. God says, your identity will be in me. And without me, and Moses says this, it's so powerful. Last week we talked about it. He says, he says God, how will I know who these people are if you don't give them a name? 
If you don't go with us, we have no name. We are like a nameless people. We're just like everyone else out there, living our lives, trying to make life work in this mess that we see around us. The glory of God defines who we are, and it brings us life. And so we go where God goes. And when he, when he moves, we follow him. And when he stays, we stay. And that is really hard for us individually, and it's really hard for us collectively. It is hard for us to go to where God is. We want so badly for God to stay where we are, right? If you've ever experienced God in a real way, you're like, why am I not still experiencing God in that real way? And it's usually because we are not recognizing where God is going and going with him. And so we, all, we often wonder as individuals, right? Like, how do I experience God more? But the furthest we'll look is we'll like, well, maybe I'll go to a new church. Maybe I'll join a new small group. Maybe I'll just get in and maybe I'll just like do a new Bible study and then maybe I'll experience God more. And then when we don't, we're like, what? I'm doing everything. I'm doing everything I can. And we don't think about the way that God's actually calling us to move to where he's really moving and what he's really doing. Or we say, I just want him to stay where I am. And why isn't he staying where I am? We want to stay where we are, but we also want the inheritance promised in where we're going. When we talk about the glory of God, here's what we mean. This is the the clearest that I can be about it. If you literally translate the word glory, it means weightiness. It means weight. It is the weight of God. The weightiness of something, meaning its ability to displace everything else around it. If you want to get all into physics, the weight of something displaces the things around it. Here's an easy way to think about it. If you throw a rock into a pond, it creates ripples, right? And the bigger the rock, the bigger the ripples and the waves become. And the universe is the, is the pond, okay? And all we really want is to make waves and make ripples. That's what we want. We want to make a difference. We want to make an impact. We want to be important and significant. We want to be weighty. And the Bible tells us that God, his glory, his weightiness, he is massive. He is far more weighty and significant and important than anything else that we'll ever encounter. And so the glory of God, the weightiness of God displaces everything else around it. It it shakes everything else around it. It makes waves instead of ripples. And those waves are us experiencing the glory of God and the way that he moves. The problem is that we want to be the one making the waves. We want to be the one knowing that we made an impact, that we ourselves have glory. And so it's hard for us, this idea of the glory of God being what we actually live for. And so instead of focusing on the glory of God much of the time, we will focus on the glory of ourselves. Our lives will ultimately be a pursuit for many of us of simply our own glory, our own weightiness in the universe, our own ability to make an impact, because that's all that we know to make our identity wrapped around and to to really give us significance in this, in this place that we live, in this life that we live in. This is what I mean when I say, you know, do we live like people who really believe God or do we live like people who are atheists? Well, uh, to, to really not believe in God is to say, I've got to find a way to make the biggest difference, to be as significant as I can, knowing that there's nothing outside of me that will, that will make me that or, that or that will be that versus the one that says God himself is what is weighty. God himself is what, gives, is what is worth glory. We want so badly to believe that by ourselves, being distinguished, being successful, being happy, 
that we're bringing God glory to, but that's not true. Uh, Christians will often be like, is there, is there any message that we want to hear more than if I do well, God does well? Is there anything that we want more than for that to be true, right? If I do well, God's doing well. If people like me, then they'll like God. If I'm happy, then that means that God's happy. If I'm blessed, it means that God's working right. The perfect message. I mean, that, like, 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 I would love to give that message because everyone would love to hear that message. Hey, guys, a sermon series today, this, we're going to go through sermon series all year. That's a long time. Are you sure you want to spend that long? Oh, yeah, it's going to be called, If We Do Well, God Does Well. All right, let's do it. Let's spend a year talking about that because I like it right? Who doesn't want that? A person who, who wants to follow Jesus. To believe that somehow through like experiencing good things for ourselves and our own glory, that that will somehow lead to God's glory. But he kind of makes it clear, and we see if we understand how people work and how we work, that often, often truthfully, the more glory that we receive, the less glory that God receives. It's sort of a form of divine plagiarism, C.S. Lewis speaks about this, and because he's brilliant, he speaks about it brilliantly. And because he's brilliant, he talks about it in terms of his own struggles. You see, we have a tendency to take the very thing that we're the best at, that we might be known for, that we might be receiving the most glory for, and that's the thing that we think God cares about the most too. And C.S. Lewis was writing about this in an essay on being an intellectual and being knowledgeable because he's brilliant. He's a brilliant philosopher and writer and, and thinker and author and everything. And so it's easy to think that those things that he's the best at, that he's achieved notoriety for, are the things that maybe God cares about the most. And he writes about this. And because he picks on his own thing, something that most of us never want to do, it's really profound. And here's what he says. He says, the intellectual life is not the only road to God, nor the safest, but we find it to be a road, and it may be the appointed road for us. Of course, it will be so only so long as we keep the impulse pure and disinterested. That is the great difficulty. As the author of the Theological Germanica says, we may come to love knowledge, our knowing more than the thing known to delight not in the exercise of our talents, but in the fact that they are ours, or even in the reputation they bring us. Every success in the scholar's life increases this danger. It becomes irresistible. He must give up his scholarly work. The time for plucking out the right eye has arrived. See, he puts this in terms that are so realistic, which is this. The more success that we experience in the thing that we're good at, the more likely that that will become something that can cause us to stumble and sin. And we don't want that to be true, right? But it is true. We think of plucking out your eye as, as what happens when you mess up and do something really nasty and dirty and sinful. But what he's saying is the, the kind of thing that leads to that is just as often when, when we gain success in something that we're good in and then we become all about that thing being good at that thing, being known for that thing. And it distorts even the thing itself and makes it into an idol. And the more that it happens, the more we're, threatened, we're, we're tempted to kind of go astray. This is where ambition can sometimes be the biggest enemy to the glory of God. I, I really think it's true that probably the biggest enemy to the glory of God, other than the enemy himself, is the ambition of man the desire that we have to be glorified, 
to live for ourselves, to be known and distinguished. And it's really hard, right? Because the world tells us, like, you're the best. You can be the best. If you don't accomplish something significant, then you won't matter. And so we have to. Our very life is wrapped up and our identity is wrapped up in. You get the sense reading about God's people in in Exodus that he's the one with the long-term goal in mind, and they're called to just rely on him day to day. He's like, you worry about, he's like, I'll worry about where the food comes from, you just collect the food and you eat it. I'll worry about where the water comes from, you just collect it and drink it. I'll worry about where the next place is you're supposed to be, or if you're even supposed to move anywhere to begin with, you just follow me and go there. I'm going to worry about the big picture, you worry about following me faithfully now. But the ambition that makes us want to go, no, 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 I need something bigger, I can do and be about something bigger causes us to go astray and not be able to to live for the glory of God. We go, no, how will I be provided for? How How can I provide for myself? And we became ambitious about this thing, needing to be independent. Why? Because when man sinned in the fall, in the garden, our sin was wanting to be independent of God. He provided everything for us, and we're like, no, I gotta do it myself. And ever since then, that's what we're trying to do, right? And that's what ambition often is. I've got to do it myself. I've got to distinguish and justify myself. And God gives us the things that we need, and then we spend all of our time stressing out about getting the things that we need. Even we look at his word. He gives us his word. He's like, here's everything that you need. It will do so much for you. And then we look at it, we go, i got to really figure out how to change this enough so that it actually fits with the world that I'm living in, right? How do I actually, like, figure out? I used to know. I used to know how to do what the Bible said, but now everything's changed, and things are different, and they're more complicated, and now I've got to really figure out how to actually do what this thing says. And it's really hard and really difficult. It's even hard to find a church that actually knows that or whatever. And, and God's like, no, that's not actually true. That's not the way it is. I've given you all that you need. Will you trust me with this thing? Will you trust me that this leads to life? Or will you need, out of your own desire, to do something bigger and be bigger than even the word that I give you to say, no, 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 I have to figure out something even more. Where we're supposed to be going in our lives, what our vision is for our lives. I talk to so many pastors about vision, because pastors think about vision all the time, right? I talk to so many pastors who have no idea what that is. You know, and I, or, or just like, I'm trying to get it. I'm trying to struggle to find it. I don't know what it is. I don't have any. I don't know what it is. Vision is simply a picture of the future. It is a picture of where you're going. And God has given us a very clear picture for where we're going. It couldn't be any clearer. Moment somebody starts, moment Jesus meets a disciple, what does he say? He says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. All right, there's some vision right there, right? We're supposed to follow Jesus and be fishers of men. That's what he wants us to be. Are we fishers of men? Not yet. Most of us, not really. So, okay, that's the vision. That's what we're going to go do, right? And then at the end, Jesus says to the disciples, okay, I'll make it even easier. I'll say it in kind of a big, great commission, right? And he says, I'm calling you. I want you to go make disciples of all the nations. I want you to baptize them. I want you to teach them the things I've commanded you. I want you to do it of all the nations. That's what you go do. And we go, oh, yeah, I know. I've heard that before. That's like old stuff. Whether anything new. And it's something new and fresh and exciting. It's like, well, okay, how many of you have ever actually discipled somebody? Well, I mean, I haven't personally directly discipled. Okay, how many of you have been discipled? Well, I don't know that I would say somebody directly discipled me. How many of you led somebody to Jesus? Well, I mean, it's I'm one time, maybe, I don't know, it's been a long time, you know, it's kind of harder to do that than it used to be, right? Okay, so we're not doing the thing yet probably really well that he's called us to do, so that's the vision, that's what we're doing. The vision is no different than the vision that it was before. And we go, well, I don't know, I gotta figure it out, it's a big thing, I wanna be a part of something big and exciting and new and fun and fulfilling, right? Because that's ambition. That says, I want more. And God's like, this is about my glory, and my glory is done when you do the things that I've called you to do. 
even if they're the same things that I called people to do thousands of years ago. No one speaks better about this idea of ambition and the dangers of it than the Apostle Paul because he himself was a very impressive person throughout his entire life. And so he knew, because people loved him, he knew, well, until they started hating him, he knew, he knew exactly what this was all about and the dangers of it. And he says this in one of the best-known passages in Scripture, in Philippians he says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he had reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to the zeal of persecutor of the church, as to the righteous under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and have, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Now, we read this and we think, oh, Paul's just talking about how to become a Christian. He's saying we don't need the law, we don't need to be like a Pharisee. No, he's talking about salvation, which is why we care so much about who we are in our own glory, because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to save ourselves. We're trying to mean something. And what we're trying to do is often find our salvation and all of the things that are impressive that we can do and be about. And what Paul is saying is, the more things that seem impressive to you that aren't the glory of God, that aren't Jesus himself, they're trash. They're rubbish. They're garbage. Why? Because they get in the way. They lead you to something that isn't really life. And if we were really honest, we would probably admit that much of the ambition and the drive that many of us struggle with having is often more about glorifying ourselves apart from God than actually bringing glory to God himself in the way that we live. Because we don't know how fulfilling that would ultimately really be. It is very difficult to be successful and profitable and well-regarded by people and be able to give credit to God. And we say, that doesn't sound quite... Um, well, honestly, that doesn't sound like a very fun way to live, right? I mean, a lot, a lot of people are like, listen, I, I, I kind of am following Jesus because it's, I thought it would make me happier. I, I thought that it would make my life better. I thought that it would make, isn't that how it's supposed to work? Isn't that why people even come to church? Because it's supposed to be better than not going to church. Your life is happier and better. And so, 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 so can I do this? Can I live for the glory of God in a way that actually makes me happier? Because it sounds like you're saying I have to live for something that isn't about myself. And one author put it really well when he said, saying Christianity will make you happy is like saying a nuclear bomb will make you hot. That's kind of an understatement, right? Yes, a nuclear bomb will make you hot. But it will do a lot more to you than that. That's like asking a person who just won a gold medal in the Olympics, are you having fun, right? Uh, I mean, yeah, but, you know, it's kind of a lot more here going on, right? We pursue the idea of happiness much of the time. 
But if that's what we're really pursuing and all that we're pursuing and why we're in this, then we'll experience something very small much of the time and we'll often be let down and disappointed. If we pursue the bigger thing, we will not receive just happiness. We'll receive something much greater and we won't even really be focused as much on the happiness part of it anymore. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, the secret of happiness a Christian comes to understand is to want this more than you want to be happy. And there is nothing in the middle. You can either want to be happy as your main goal in life and never be, or you can want to know God and know his presence as your main goal in life and have everything. The glory of God gives us everything. It gives us everything, profoundly more than just trying to be happy and justify ourselves. And the trap is not believing that and believing that we have to only do things that will bring us glory, bring us credit, give us the credit. When I was in like middle school, I was riding my bike down this bridge, this like kind of covered bridge over a river and this bus was in front of me and it, and it got in an accident and it went off the bridge and it went into the river. And I jumped off my bike and I jumped in because who wouldn't do that? And I jumped into the river and I swam to the back of the bus. It was kind of sinking down and I saw the back and I grabbed the thing and I, it was stuck and I had to break it to get it open. And I got it open and then water's like filling up this bus and I was like going to get the kids out but I couldn't. And so all I could think to do, I had to grab onto the edge of the bus and I had to pull it and I had to swim and like pull it out. And it was like really hard because there was suction, the water was sucking in, there was a lot going on. I can't explain the physics of it, but it was really hard. And I finally got it out and I got it back up onto the land and all the water kind of comes out and fortunately nobody died, right? It was amazing. I don't know why I've never told the story before. That, I, that didn't actually happen. Um, I didn't do any of that. Um, that. I actually think that's a scene from the movie Man of Steel, uh, a Superman movie. That's kind of the part of the movie where we're beginning to go, this Clark Kent kid, he's not normal, right? This red sun's giving him some powers. Um, there, I was so desperate trying to think of a really good story to tell you guys in my sermon this week. I was like, I just wish I had a good story and I just don't have one and I can't think of one. And then I was like, oh, I know, I'll just tell them someone else's story. That'll be fine. They'll still laugh and it'll be a good time for all of us, right? There would be nothing worse to us. I think one of the things that we find the most distasteful is the idea of plagiarism, the idea of taking someone else's thing and putting our name to it. I was staying at my sister-in-law's house over the holidays last year. They, they put us up, took care of us, no easy task. We were there for like five days. And one morning she wakes up and she's like, I'm going to make blueberry muffins. And she makes blueberry muffins and they're amazing. It took like three hours. She made them all from scratch, everything. I'm pretty sure she ground the flour. She made them all from scratch. And she probably, I think she like adjusted like the blueberries in the top, you know, so that when they baked, you know, they looked even nice. Put some sh like sugar on top of them. I mean, they were amazing. And then all the, a bunch of other family came over and we were having breakfast and I, and I told everybody that I made them. I just told everybody I made them. I was like, like it was no big deal. I was like, do you guys like the muffins that I made? And they're like, these are really good. Wow, you made these? I was like, yeah, I know. It took me forever to find everything. It wasn't even my kitchen. It was cool that like, you know, yeah. And she was right there and she was just like, you know. And I was like, what are you going to say? Are you going to like tell them, do you need them to know you made them? Is that your deal? Like you made them? You know, I'm not an easy guy to be brother-in-law with. Um, and ultimately, I did tell people I didn't make the muffins. She did. But there you go. That's my exciting plagiarism story. It's about muffins, okay? Which one would you guys rather have? The bus or the muffin story, okay? I told the first service, like I can think of nothing that would like be crazier than if I showed up at a primetimer potluck and I had a pie. I never bring anything to these. I just eat the food that they bring. And I showed up with a pie and they were like, Ed finally did it. He showed up with a pie. And then I show up with a pie and Mardell Hohensee cuts a piece of the pie and she eats it and she's like, this is my pie. 
this is my pie recipe. And she like flips the table over and she gets all mad because that's what Mardell does and she gets mad. Everybody knows that. And it's like, why is he stealing my pie recipe, right? Like, you can make it, I don't care. Just don't tell people that it's yours, right? It's mine, it's my thing, that's my thing. I'm Mardell, I make the pies. They go for like hundreds of dollars at auctions, I think. That's what somebody told me. There's nothing more distasteful than the idea of taking something that someone else has done and claiming credit for it. And this happens in the Bible all the time. This happens to Christians all the time. This happens to churches all the time. It's called divine plagiarism. It is taking credit for what God has done. And it would be so easy for his people to do this. And it is so easy for us to do this. And I love nothing more than when something happens in the church and it is clear that there is no explanation other than God did something that the church doesn't get to take credit for it or claim it. There's a, at, my, at the church that we were a part of before in California, a, a few weeks ago, a young family was in a terrible car accident. They were, they were in a head-on collision with another car that wandered into their, into their, into their lane. And, um, and, one, and one daughter, a four-year-old daughter was put into, she had brain swelling, she had brain damage, and she's been in a coma since the accident. Another daughter has been, had like severe physical trauma, not able to walk yet. Um, one of the moms in the car broke her back. It was a terrible, terrible accident. And the church just completely surrounded this family in prayer and was praying. And the daughter that had been in a coma, who's four, she's had terrible brain swelling, and the numbers have been so high that they've been measuring that they can't bring her out of the coma. They can't even give her an MRI. They can't really do a lot of of anything, and they don't know why the numbers are so high, and they're really worried about it, and so the church prays for them, and they pray for them, and then the doctors go back in, and they go, oh, it looks like our machines aren't actually working, and it turns out her brain isn't swelling, and it turns out that she's a lot better than we thought she was, and then she starts to wake up, right? And you see things like this happen, and you go, this happens because people pray. This happens because of who God is. This does not happen because this church figured out something to do. I've heard stories of this church. I've heard stories here of people having these things happen to them, going like, they said one thing, and I received prayer, like a whole community of people praying for me, and then it completely changed, and they're like, we don't know what to tell you, we don't know what happened, but you know, maybe something's not working, we're not sure. And you don't see in Christian bookstores books that churches write, how to have a guaranteed prayer service, right? How to have a prayer healing service that works every time. And we love writing books when stuff works, man. You do something and it works for like eight seconds and we write a book and then everybody buys it and it's like, do this thing and it works and everyone likes it, right? But you don't see that. Why? Because it's obvious in situations sometimes. It's like, that was God. That was something that God has done. That was not something that we did. And I love it when that happens. Because those are also the times that we go, you know what, I feel like I'm experiencing God right now, and I feel like much of the time I'm going, am I experiencing God and all the other stuff that we're talking about and doing and almost kind of toiling over? And so we often don't give God the credit that he deserves. We don't look to God to do things. We don't depend on his glory for things, and then we wonder where he is. And what he tells his people again and again and again is, this is all about me and my glory. This is not about you guys taking credit for it and trying to make yourselves look good. Some of us fear, some of us care about the glory of ourselves rather than the glory of God. Others of us don't really pursue the glory of ourselves. We actually are consumed with the glory of others. We actually want others to be glorified. And that comes in the form of fearing people. Because glory and weightiness means the impact a person has in your life too. And so we have fear of man, of people that we know, of other people in the world around us, because we give them way more credit and way more weight than we ought to. I talked last week about all of the things that the Bible says about who we are. And then I talked about the lies that we believe about who we are. 
and how wrong those two things are, how disconnected those two things are. That we will go, we will read in the Bible that God has called us to the single most significant calling that a person can be called to as a priest, to do things that have an eternal impact, eternal, and that we're qualified for the job because he's given us the Holy Spirit and because we can do this thing. And yet we spend all of our time trying to find something to dedicate our lives to that we think is meaningful. Avoid the thing that God calls us to do, thinking that our meaning and purpose come in that. And if we don't do it, and most of us don't feel like we find that thing, then we end up just being like, I'm a failure. What am I doing? What am I about? How am I living? What's my purpose? What's my meaning? What am I supposed to be doing? How am I supposed to make a difference? Where's the ripples in the pond going in my life? That, that God tells us that when he looks at us that we're a saint because of what Jesus has done, which means that when he looks at us, he's, he's pleased with us and he's happy with us. And yet we feel overwhelmed with a sense of guilt and shame all the time. We feel bad about everything. We feel bad about things all the time. We constantly feel bad. We constantly feel guilty. We constantly feel shameful. Why do we feel that way? We're worried. Why do we believe these things? Because these are things that we often hear from others, or these are things that we often think are coming from others, or we simply just care too much about what everybody else thinks and how everyone else feels. And rather than caring about God and being afraid of God, having the appropriate fear of God, we live with a fear of man. We're called to live for the glory of God. Not the glory of ourselves, not the glory of other men and other people, but that's a hard thing to do. And if we can do that, if we can live that way, then we would truly be distinct. And that is what Exodus is about. It's about being distinct. What we see when we look at Exodus is two things. We see a holy God, and what that means is a creator, a rescuer, a foreigner, a forgiver, somebody who forgives even when the people are wrong, and somebody who provides for his people again and again and again and again. That that is a holy God. And we see a holy people, people who trust, people who are grateful, people who move forward when they're up against the wall of water, people who believe that God will keep doing what he's already done rather than he's finished doing that. And I can't hope for him to keep working that way moving forward. People who can rest, ultimately people that point to him. This is what it means to be distinct. This is what it means to be a holy people. Let's pray. God, we say this again and again, that you are a good God and that you are a great God, but you are also a glorious God. And if we don't believe that about you, then it will fundamentally change the way that we live and not in a good way. That much of the fear that we feel is because we think that you are less than you really are and that other people are more than they really are. That much of what we do is because we're afraid of what other people will think, how other people will see us, or because we feel so inadequate that we're consumed with needing ourselves to be glorified. God, our prayer is that we would be freed up from those things so that we could live for you, so that we could live for your glory, and that we would, in doing that, experience something that is so profoundly more powerful than happiness that we would be truly fulfilled and people would look at us and they would see a people who are fulfilled seeking someone else's glory, not their own, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen. 
Father, that is our prayer, that your spirit would fill us up. All the things that you tell us are true about ourselves um, are made possible through your Holy Spirit. So we pray that, and we pray that we would remember who you are, God. So much of what we read about in your word is just, comes back to a few basic truths about you. And if we could just genuinely believe these things, build our lives on them with true belief, then we would be fine, and people would come to see you, Lord. And so we pray for firmer belief, Lord, in who you are and how glorious you are, God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I'm excited, hold on, that, in, in, that our next series, it's going to be a three-week series that starts next week, and it's on rest. Uh, and we planned it a while ago. It wasn't just randomly at the last minute. So I hope you guys have a restful Sunday, and you come back and just know for the next three weeks it's going to be really easy. We're just going to talk about rest. So we'll see you guys then.